My goodness, it's good to be back. Claudia said this morning, I've been gone so long, they may have to retrain me. <laughs> Re, uh, send me back to school for some retooling. Uh, we just had a wonderful time. We spent two weeks in the North Cascades in uh, Washington, and uh, then a week in British Columbia, and then down along the coast of Washington over to Olympic Peninsula and to the Olympic Peninsula. And and then along the coast of Oregon, and finally into central Oregon, and then uh, back home. Uh, no trouble with the vehicle this time. Thank you for your prayers. At least no major problems. Uh, I was uh, sitting near a little stream in British Columbia, nothing around but uh, Carolyn and a lot of trees. And it was Sunday morning, and it suddenly dawned on me that usually on Sunday morning, I am up talking to hundreds of people, and the thought terrified me. Uh, if you know how, how untrue this is to my character to even show up in a group, much less speak, you would understand. But uh, I remember that this is a place where they really love a fella, and that encouraged me to come back. So uh, it's good to be here. I would like to introduce you to a book that hardly anyone ever reads. Uh, it's in the Old Testament. And uh, when people do read it, they're sometimes not sure what it is that they have read. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. And I would encourage you to uh, turn with us to that book if you have, uh, have a Bible with you. If you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, it's about midway through the Bible. Uh, right after the book of Proverbs, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. I used to teach the Old Testament introduction course to the interns here. Uh, they won't uh, subject them to that any longer, but uh, that used to be my task. And uh, I used to start my lectures at the first of the year assuming that they knew very little about the Old Testament, and normally that assumption is a good one. Uh, I would ask how many had recently read the book of Psalms, and there'd be a number of hands that would go up, and then I would say, how many have recently read the book of Isaiah? And a few more hands would go up, and I would say, how many of you have read the book of Hezekiah? And I, always, I would get uh, one or two hands, and of course, Hezekiah is not a book in the Old Testament at all. Hezekiah was an 8th century Judean king. Uh, and then I would say, how many of you have read the book of Ecclesiasticus? And I'd always get a hand or two that would go up, and I would presume that they were either Catholics or they were confused, uh, because the book of Ecclesiasticus does not occur in Protestant Bibles by and large, and most of us have not read it. It's one of the apocryphal books. You'd find it in the Jerusalem Bible, for example, but uh, not in the New International Version. The book in the Old Testament that we're concerned with is the book of Ecclesiastes. That's a very old book, uh, something like 3,000 years old. And the tendency is to think that any book that ancient must not be at all relevant. But it wrestles with, the, with one of the most relevant problems I can imagine. It's the question of meaning. Where can we find satisfaction? The Rolling Stones first articulated for us the fact that we can't get no satisfaction. But they were simply saying aloud what people have been saying throughout history. It doesn't make any difference whether you live in the Stone Age or the Nuclear Age. Our concern is where do we find meaning? Where do we find a point to living? Where are we from? Where are we going? What's the, what's the purpose? 
of our life. That is the topic that the book of Ecclesiastes is concerned with. It is the uh, the book is very close, uh, closely associated in the Old Testament with the book of Job. Both are included in the so-called wisdom literature section of the Old Testament. Job is concerned with the problem of why bad things happen to good people. Ecclesiastes is concerned with the question of why, why even the good things of life don't satisfy uh, G.K. Chesterton said that despair comes not when the bad things in life cease to have meaning, but when the good things in life are meaningless. And that's the, that's the concern of the, of the author. The author is the book of so- is, 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 is King Solomon. Uh, that's debated by some, but not by me. The text very clearly indicates that, uh, that he is the author of this, of this book. He was the wisest man in the world. It would seem fitting that this man would turn his thoughts to this this problem of meaning. Now let me try to explain what Solomon is doing. Solomon had the time and the resources. He had the money. He had the leisure time. uh, He had the wisdom to examine every theory of knowledge, every theory of existence, every philosophy, every worldview that's conceivable. Try them on for size. Try to live that way or observe others that were living that way. And he, and he formed certain conclusions as a result. You cannot think of a philosophy of life as not covered in this book. Any philosopher reading this book would recognize every philosophy by its name. You'll find existentialism, realism, idealism, hedonism, materialism. Every conceivable philosophy, every thought that man has ever had about existence is found in this book, 1,000 B.C., 3,000 years ago. He takes every theory of life, and he turns it upside down and inside out, and he pulls it up by the roots, and he shakes all the bugs out of it, and he examines it in every way possible in order to find out if it works. And if it is true, which is the more important issue, many things work that are not true. His concern is what is true. And uh, he, he brings to bear uh, to this issue all of the wealth and all of the resources and all the time that he has at his command. He's described, or he describes himself in the book as the teacher. If you have a New American Standard Bible, uh, the first verse will tell you that uh, these are the words of the preacher, which gives it an, an ecclesiastical ring, sounds like a very churchy book. You think of someone with a turned-around collar. Uh, when you hear the, the term Ecclesiastes, that sounds like uh, theological or a, it's a very churchy term. We think of ecclesiastical uh, garb or ecclesiastical language. sounds like church. Actually, that was uh, the farthest thing from, from Solomon's mind. This is what we would call today a cultural apologetic. Let me explain what, what Solomon does. He looks at life the way the man or woman on the street looks at life. The way your friends and neighbors and associates and your friends on the campus look at life. He looks at life as though God had never spoken, as though no one was minding the store, as though there is no information from outside. What you see is what you get. What you taste and touch and feel and and what you can think with your mind, apart from God. 
cuts himself off totally from any revelation. It's It's as though God had never spoken through the prophets, never spoken through his son. This is the mindset of most people out there in the world. As Carl Sagan says, the universe is all that is, all that ever has been, all that ever will be. This is it. There's nothing more. No news from outside, either good or bad. What we have is what we can subject to the scientific uh, uh, method and uh, what we can, can think about with our minds. No other horizons. The name of the God of Israel is conspicuously uh, absent in the book because uh, he's writing to Gentiles. He, 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 he puts himself on their level. He goes on their turf and he begins to speak to them in terms they can understand. Now, you'll, you'll find the name God occurring in the book, but it could just as well be the God El or Baal or Zeus or Jupiter or any of the gods because he, he simply uses the generic term for God. And that name will occur throughout the book, but you have to think of that in terms of the way your friends would understand God, apart from the revelation of God that, that we have in, in Jesus. Now, the term Ecclesiastes sounds, uh, again, it, it sounds religious, but uh, we get the names of our books in the Old Testament from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in in the Greek version, this word Ecclesiastes simply means someone who speaks to the ecclesia, that is, to the, to the, to the congregation. It, it was a word that was used for the Greek uh, populace when they got together to vote. That was called the ecclesia. It was used for the church in the New Testament. It was used for the congregation of Israel in the Old Testament. It just means a gathering of people. So to anglicize the term, the Ecclesiastes was the man who addressed the ecclesia, the group. He was a lecturer. And uh, in Hebrew, that's exactly the, the, the idea. He's called Koheleth, one who addresses the Kahal, who is the assembly. So this is a lecturer. It's a philosopher, not a preacher. And you need to understand that, because otherwise the book will have little or no significance for you. Now let's, uh, let's look at the book, chapter 1. The words of the teacher, the philosopher, the mentor, the lecturer. The son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. It's the motto of the book. He, he states his conclusion before he begins to develop his, his theme. Point, the pointlessness of life is not some blip on the radar screen. It is the sum total of life. Life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying absolutely nothing. And what a downer that is. But that's the conclusion to which, to which he came. Now, this is a thinking man, you see, and the problem with most of us is we don't think. As C.S. Lewis uh, uh, points out in screw tape letters, and I think it's the first or second of Screwtape's letters to his nephew, Slobgub, he's talking about his patient, and he says the thing to do is to prevent him from thinking. Don't try to meet logic with logic. Don't try to, to counter truth with untruth. In fact, don't let him think at all. Just keep him distracted. Just help him to think that the stream of things that happen to him, the people that he sees, the place where he works, the events that happen to him are reality. That there's nothing, nothing greater, nothing deeper, nothing more profound than what he sees and hears on, on the street. And that way he'll never think about life. And 
screw tape has been remarkably successful in our age. Average man comes home from work, uh, doffs his uh, good clothes, puts on his grubbies, pops the top on a can of Coors, flips on the television set, and flips off the world and his family. And he doesn't think. Or the kids clamp the headphones on the on the head and they listen to the music and they, they don't hear anything else that's going on around. We're distracted. And what this man wants us to do is to think because he realizes if we think through the implications of our philosophies of life, we will come to his conclusion that it is all pointless. That's why I love to ask that question of people that you know, I meet with, un, not with non-Christian, unchurched men. I very often ask them, what's your philosophy of life? Because I want them to think through the implications of their, of their philosophy. Most of us have not thought them through. This man forces us to if we take him seriously. And he comes to the conclusion that life is a tale told by an idiot. It's utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And we're on this treadmill. The first 11 verses of this chapter is something of a prologue. I think the New International Version is right when they give it the top, they give it the theme, everything is meaningless. What does a man profit from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Men work so they can eat, so they can work, so they can eat, so they can work, so they can eat. Payday is never the payoff. They're on this treadmill. There's no profit from your labor. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The earth mocks us. Henry Gibson, remember Henry Gibson? He was the little guy that looked through the grass and, and laughed in, and he said, Time goes, we say. No, we go, time says. A generation comes, a generation go, the earth remains the same. Josh was reading this, my, my son, Josh, youngest son, was reading this uh, article in the Statesman last week on Woodstock 25 years later. And in the course of the, of the article, it said uh, three uh, people died and uh, two children were born at Woodstock. And, and Joshua's very astute comment was the world was diminished by one that day. Generation comes, generation go. You read... Uh, the report of births on one side of the newspaper and the old bits on the other, and you realize that the, the stability of the earth mocks us. The earth's there, we come and go. The sun rises, the sun sets, and literally pants back to where it rises. My goodness, are the nights short. Work hard, come home, go to bed. Hardly Your head hardly hits the pillow, and it's morning again. I always have a hard time keeping my head on the pillow. It slips off. Nature mocks us. It's a closed system. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes. Where it stops, nobody knows. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing. Or the ear, it's full of hearing. Our senses are fed, but we're never filled. That's the point. Someone has said of Western civilization, it's the only place where our bellies are filled and our hearts are empty. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. History repeats itself. There's nothing new under the sun. Remember the old guy, Pythagoras, whose theorems we used to struggle with in high school geometry? Lived in the 6th century. 400 years after Solomon. 
wrote verse 9. He said, The things that happen once happen again, and nothing is new. See, that's when the good things of life no longer satisfy. We're trapped in this closed system. Not only nature is closed, but so is the world, the world of people, the world of history. Is there anything, he says, of which one can say, look, this is something new? People don't even sin in original ways. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. There's no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who who follow. We don't learn from history, and the next generation won't learn from our history either. I uh, can't help but think as I reflect on this generation that I have seen in my life history repeat itself a number of times. In the 50s, we were materialists. In the 60s, there was a reaction against materialism. In the 70s, the children that were in reaction began to have children, and those children now are going to school so they can get credit cards, so they can be materialists like their grandparents. Nothing ever changes. History repeats itself. Nature repeats itself. Around and around we go. And where it stops, nobody knows. And Solomon says, stop the world. I want to get off. Well, maybe things will get better. Let's see. (laughs) Verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. King can do as he pleases. I devoted myself to study. The word means to plunge into the depths of a thing, to tear up the roots of something, to look at it at at its most fundamental meanings, and to explore. That means to pick up something and turn it around and look at every facet, see it from every perspective. Explore by wisdom all that's done under the earth. And his conclusion is, life is a big burden. What a heavy burden God has laid on man. You say, oh, oh, he slipped. He used the name of God. No, he used the name that any pagan of that day would have used. Could be El, could be Zeus, could be any God. What he's saying is that providence plays games with us. The gods have put a heavy burden on us. Life's a downer. There's, there's no meaning. There's no point to any of it. There's nothing to live for. And, and the gods are, are playing games with us. He says, I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are pointless. They're meaningless. A chasing after, after wind. There's nothing we can control. There's nothing that we can really count on. And then he quotes a proverb that must have been in vogue in those days. What's twisted cannot be uh, straightened. What's lacking cannot be counted or cannot be made up. His point is that there are always these twists in life that that surprise us and and rob us of meaning. And there are always these limitations in in life. None of us is is infinite in wisdom. We're always limited in what we know and limited in what we can do. There are these finite limits that that we keep butting our head up against. And then there are these odd twists of fate. They just take the wind right out of our sails. Here's a man who's on his way to the top. He's got it all together, and, and he's, he's, he's almost to the top of the pile. He goes to his physician for a routine checkup, and he discovers he has cancer, and he's got six months to live. Those are those twists in life that, that show us how futile and pointless and, and meaningless life is. So here's the wisest man in the world. He says, I thought to myself, look, I've, I've grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who's ruled 
over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge, so I applied myself to understanding wisdom, that is reason, and madness and folly, that is irrationalism. So, well, well, we'll try to work on this thing by means of our mind, and then we'll just bypass the mind. We'll bypass reality. This is written 3,000 years before Timothy Leary and Carlos Castanetus and all the others that are, that are talking about finding yourself through altered consciousness and through drugs. You know, tune in, turn on, drop out. That's how you're going you're gonna to find yourself. Drop some acid or a peyote uh, uh, button or something and, and some hallucinogenic, and that's how you're going to find Reality, or you cultivate the ugly and the obscene and the, the absurd and the obnoxious. Uh, you, know, you see that sort of thing in the heavy metal music today and in the uh, theater of the absurd and these paintings that don't make any sense at all. I don't know if you remember or not, when Walt Kaiser was here a couple of years ago, he talked about uh, going to an art exhibit, and there was a painting that was displayed. A modern artist looked like he'd, he'd been about 20 feet from the canvas throwing globs of paint on it just just dabs of white and brown and blue and green paint and uh, someone asked him you know what what does that painting say and the painter said well i did it this way and i didn't say anything so i turned it on its side and it didn't that wasn't what i wanted to say and then i turned it upside down that's what i wanted to say and everybody went wow that's profound and kyder said no that's absurd it's nonsense I mean, that's the paint, the painting giving meaning to the painter rather than the other way around. It's nonsense. And yet that's, uh, you know, that's what we're being told today. Bypass reality and you'll find yourself in drugs or in some ugly, obscene thing. Four, he says, maybe madness is better than wisdom because with much wisdom comes much sorrow with more knowledge, the more grief. Boy, I wish I could write that on the lintels of the doorposts of every university in the United States. I have uh, uh, attended as a student two universities, and I have worked on a number of universities as a college pastor, and I've always been impressed by the gloom that hangs over those campuses. They, they live in shadow land, as C.S. Lewis says. Shattered dreams and shadow. I mean, you know, the weekend comes around, football game, everybody gets excited. But then Monday morning, it's back to Mudville and the, and the books, and there's a lot of gloom, a lot of gloom. That's why there's so much depression among college students. That's why there's so much suicide among college students. There is no joy in mere knowledge. The more you know, he says, the more grievous life becomes. And that's why he thought, well, maybe it's better just trip out. Because you're not going to find any meaning in, in the books. So he said, I thought in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure. Okay. Wisdom doesn't work. Uh, bypassing reality doesn't, doesn't work, so I'll just be a hedonist. Eat, drink, and be merry. Uh, go for all the gusto. So live for today. And uh, that lasts about as long as it takes for him to write this uh, sentence. Come now, I'll test you with pleasure and find out what's good. But that proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. All right, let's get the guys together and yuck it up. and uh, Or we'll all go get together and go to the local bar and listen to the, the rise, rising comic, the funniest guy in town. And then uh, 
the bar closes and the laughter ceases and you go home to your bachelor apartment and the loneliness sets in. Doesn't make any difference what kind of humor, good humor, sick humor. It's foolish, he says. And what does pleasure accomplish? So he said, I tried cheering myself with wine. Uh, literally, the Hebrew says, I tried carrying my body with, with, with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding with wisdom. In other words, I didn't want to be a blind, staggering, fallen down drunk. I kept the goal in mind. I, I didn't drink too much. I just stayed mellow. Just, you know, just kind of leveled it out. You know, they, didn't, they couldn't distill alcohol back in those days, but they had some pretty potent forms of wine. And I had my little flask. He said I carried it with me. And I had my little flask of uh, nose, nose candy, cocaine. Uh, or I smoked a little pot, and I just, just kept a little buzz on all the time. Just felt real good. But he said that, that didn't work either. He said, I undertook great projects. Solomon devoted 13 years of his life to building his mansion and embellishing it with gardens and parks. Built houses for myself and planted vineyards. Made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. If you go to Jerusalem today, they'll take you to the south of the city. Down the southwest, there are three reflecting pools down there that Solomon built. They're 500 feet long. 300 feet wide. They were built as reservoirs for his gardens, but they are absolutely beautiful. And uh, he devoted himself to those projects. I bought male and female slaves, and I had other slaves who were born in my house. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed gold and silver for myself. It's been estimated that Solomon's annual income was over a million dollars a year, and that was back when a million dollars was worth hundreds of times what a million dollars is worth today. He's an extremely wealthy man. Not only the wisest man, he was the richest man on the face of the earth. He had it all. I acquired men and women, singers, and a harem. Uh, the NIV is guessing at this term, but they're probably right. The Hebrew word means something very delicate, soft and delicate. If we were translating, I think, into the language we understand, we would, we would describe these delicate beings as high-class prostitutes. He had his uh, stable of kept women in their luxury apartments, beautifully dressed, beautifully coiffed, with jewelry, and you know, lovely, lovely young women. He calls them the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. In other words, I didn't lose sight of the goal. I kept in mind that this was not a thing in itself that all of my quest was to find, will this satisfy me? And so he tried it all on that, on that basis. I denied myself nothing. My, heart's, my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward. For all my labor, a thing of beauty is a joy forever, we say. I'm going to enjoy this beauty that I've created, the beautiful things, the beautiful people, the beautiful women. Now I'm going to sit down and enjoy them. Yet when I surveyed all my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. The New English Bible translates that last phrase. It didn't mean a thing.
He had what uh, David Thoreau called destination sickness. He had arrived. He had everything he wanted. He didn't want anything he had. A number of years ago, I, I think I told this story several years ago. A friend of mine, young man that I'd befriended who was 18, 19 years of age, was he rode with a motorcycle gang in San Francisco, and he was killed in a knife fight up in the city. And uh, I and Ron Ritchie were asked to conduct the funeral up in Foothill Park, which is a beautiful little park up in uh, the Santa Cruz Mountains and a eucalyptus grove. And a natural amphitheater there with a lake at the bottom. And Ron and I stood by the lake, and uh, bikers came in from all up and all over uh, Santa Clara, San Mateo County, all the way from San Francisco, Hell's Angels and others, representatives of the various clubs, and they drove their choppers in there, and they, they sat on the grass, several hundred of them. And Ron and I had an opportunity to talk about the goodness of God, and, and this is not, death is not the end of life in Christ, and we just told them the good news. And afterwards, uh, the president of one of the, one of the clubs in San Jose came up, to me and thank me for the time. He's the one that organized, had organized the group. And uh, then he looked down at the ground, he shuffled his feet, and he said, you know, he said, I, I've got a putt and a pad and an old lady. He said, but I ain't got no peace. He had a, had a bike, motorbike, motorcycle, and he had a place to live, and he had a woman, but he didn't have any peace. And it doesn't make any difference whether you have a putt and a pad and an old lady or a BMW and a, a home on the Bigwood River or, uh, you know, the most beautiful woman in town, uh, Miss Idaho. That's not where you're going to find peace. To quote him, there ain't no peace. And, and this is the place to which Solomon comes and realize that it didn't mean a thing. Uh, David, could you hand me my notebook there? I went off and left it. I want to read something that I read a number of years ago. Uh, picked up a book called Looking Out for Number One. Some of you are familiar with it. It was a bestseller for a while. Uh, it's an incredible title. You know, have you ever thought how, you know, we're really embarrassed to, to, to say that, looking out for number one. What we say is looking out for numero uno. It's kind of a euphemism. Uh, what it is is just crass selfishness, self-centeredness. And uh, this book just astonished me. I, I read this uh, paragraph and I just started to weep. I, it just hit me with such force. It's called, All Dressed Up and No Place to Go. In my early 20s, he says, while I was stumbling around the streets of New York hoping to promote a deal, any kind of deal, I had the good fortune to be introduced to a wealthy old Wall Streeter. A Wall Streeter is used here as an investor who spends each day watching the ticker tape and maneuvering money in and out of stocks at hopefully opportune moments. Harold Hart epitomized the typical Lower East Side to Park Avenue success story. Having begun his struggle as a poor uh, youngster, Mr. Hart had eventually amassed a considerable stack of chips, purportedly in the area of $50 million. At the time I first met him, he was already in his early 70s. He had it all, a chauffeured limousine to take him to and from work, quotes, a splendid wardrobe, and a breathtaking apartment decorated in early rich. 
I had the opportunity to visit this gentleman in his Park Avenue palace on several occasions and came to know him quite well. The purpose of our meeting, at least my purpose, was to try to induce him to invest in some perfectly sound venture, such as a sulfur mine in Tibet or a gold panning expedition in, in New Zealand. And he goes on to describe what he calls his LSD deals, which are deals that you would only uh, conceive or go for if you were high on LSD. He says, the biggie came one evening when I went to visit Mr. Hart on one of my LSD deal missions. When I arrived, I found him resting tranquilly in his favorite chair, garbed in silk robe and pajamas with servants waiting on him, hand and foot. I sat there a while, waiting as he stared blankly into space. Finally, he muttered. Now, I'm going to to clean this up a little bit, but I will read some of it as he he put it. You know, he says, nature has played a great hoax on man. You work all your life, go through an endless number of struggles, play all the petty little games, and if you're lucky, you finally make it to the top. Well, I made it a long time ago, and you know what? It doesn't mean a damn thing. I tell you, nature's made a fool of man, and the biggest fool of all is me. Here I sit in poor health, exhausted from years of playing the game, well aware that time is running out, and I keep asking myself, now what, genius? What's your next brilliant move going to be? All that time I spent worrying, maneuvering, it was meaningless. Life is nothing but a big hoax. We think we're so important. But the truth is, we're nothing. A few months after that pleasant little dissertation in his apartment, Harold Hart died. That was many years ago. But today his words and the tone in which he spoke them still ring in my ears. And Solomon says, everything was meaningless. I realized that it didn't mean a thing. Well, maybe it'll get better. Let's read on. Verse 12. Decided to compare wisdom and madness and folly because, you know, since one doesn't seem to be any better than the other, you know, maybe I'm missing something. So I turned my thoughts to consider Wisdom. What is it that makes wisdom meaningless? And also madness and folly. What more can the king's successors do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head, he can see better. While the fool walks in darkness, he stumbles along. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them all. Wisdom and and knowledge and folly are all abstracts. The point is that wise men and fools die. So I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me too. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. For the wise man like the fool will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too will die. See, it's death also that mocks us. Why later in Ecclesiastes he will say there's more reality at a funeral than there is at a party because at least at a funeral you have to face the brutal fact of death. From the very beginning of human history, the death rate has remained a constant 100%. Nobody gets out of this life alive. Uh, no matter what we think, uh, unlike the woman that, who was C.S. Lewis's wife's friend who said that she didn't worry about death because she figured when she got to that point, science will have done something about it. The monks, you know, used to keep a skull. Medieval monks kept a skull on their uh, uh, on their desk, and written across it in Latin was "Remember death, remember death." 
you know, we keep trying to forget that. It keeps intruding in our thoughts so we stave it off in various ways. It just keeps popping up. It's the one hard fact of life. Death. Doesn't make any difference if you're rich or poor, if you're tall or short, if you're pretty or ugly. If doesn't make any difference. Whether you're wise or a fool, you're going to die. It's one of those things like taxes that you can count on. Grim Ripper's going to come and get us all. So we, you know, it's just one of those brutal facts that we that we have to face. My, my friend Bob Smith used to quote a poem. Um, it goes like this. This is the age of the half-read page and the quick hash. In the mad dash, the bright night with the, with the nerves tight, the plane hop and the brief stop, the lamp tan in a short span, the big shot in a hot spot and the brain strain and the heart pain and the cat naps till the spring snaps and the fun's done. Well, maybe it'll get better. <laughs> so Solomon says, I hated life. I don't want to live anymore. I hated it. I want to take my life. Because the work that is the toil and you know, just the business of living is grievous. Get depressed. All this morbid introspection just pushed him into inertia. He didn't want to do anything. He just gave up. Now, Dorothy Sayers says that our society is one that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive only because there's nothing for which it will die. Solomon says, I hated everything I toiled for under the sun because I must leave them. Verse 23, all is day, all man's day. His work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind doesn't rest. This too is meaningless. Remind me of the t-shirt. Life is hard. And then you die. So, moment of insight. The light comes on. Moment, you know, sort of a breakthrough for Solomon. Verse 24. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. In other words, just being existentialist. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That wasn't the Epicureans that came up with that thought. He preceded Epicureans by at least 400 years. Uh, also, uh, you know, the beer ad, go for all the gusto because you only go around once. You're way ahead of these fellows. So he says, all right, let's you know, just live for the moment. That's what existentialism, existentialism is. Existence is the thing. Like uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's statement, we should travel hopefully. That's what gives us meaning, not the destination. It's traveling hopefully. So let's just uh, give ourselves to all sorts of pleasure and let's uh, let's live for the moment. Uh, let's see if that doesn't work. And he says that didn't work because the problem is there's a providence at work. God, he says, is always messing with our life. And there are some people who can't find satisfaction even when they go for the gusto. You see how he puts it? Uh, this is from the hand of God, he says. That is to find satisfaction in your existence. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? For to the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom and knowledge and happiness. You know, there's some that God satisfies. But to the man who's the sinner, who displeases him for some reason, whatever, we don't know because, you know, they didn't have any news from outside and didn't really know what sin was. 
Uh, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand over to the one who pleases God. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So the only thing to do is to live for the present. Uh, except the problem is that doesn't work either. Because living for the present pays off for some people. But for others, it doesn't. There's a bunch of capricious gods back there that are controlling our, our destiny. So the only thing we can do is to base our life upon the solid, unshakable foundation of despair. There's nothing else to live for. Okay, well, let's pronounce the benediction and go home. (laughs) No, I wouldn't do that to you. Well, you turn to the last chapter in the book, and you have to realize this was was one lecture. It It wasn't done in pieces the way we're doing it. And I can just see uh, Solomon lecturing uh, on a a university campus uh, in a philosophy course and just taking them down every road, showing the emptiness of it, and then coming to the end. And what we will do here over the next couple of three weeks is look at it in sections and then continue to go to the end because he does have a point to make. There is meaning in the universe. There is a reason for our life. Life is not ultimately meaningless, as we shall see. Uh, Verse 9 of chapter 12. The NIV says this is the conclusion of the matter. Not only was the teacher wise, we would say street smart. The word for wise is the word for skill at life. It's not the word for knowledge. It's the ability to relate knowledge to, to life. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. Teacher. He pondered, searched out, set in order many proverbs, and he searched to find just the right words. He wanted to write accurately and well, and what he wrote was right and true. He worked hard at this lecture to come up with just the right words that would, as he puts it later, goad your will. The words of the wise are like goad, spur the will. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails that would stick in your mind so that when you read this book, you'd never forget it. He worked hard at it, took a lot of time, sweated over his text. I read just this last week of some author that's unfamiliar to me. He said, he said, writing is easy. All you do is stare at a blank sheet of paper until drops of blood appear on your forehead. And uh, that's what this... Uh, This man did. He thought this thing out and refined it. Just the right words. So the words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails. Given by one shepherd. You notice the capital S? He's not referring to himself. He's talking about God. He said, oh, he slipped up again. He's using the word that Israel uses for for God. The Lord Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, he's using a word that was used all over the ancient Near East for someone who would come to deliver them from the terrible tragedies that they had contrived for themselves. You can read Egyptian literature that preceded this uh, book, and there are these plaintive cries. Where is the shepherd who would come and Get us out of this mess that we've made of our life. And they were thinking of a king or some other man. But it was our Lord Jesus. 
The Lord is our shepherd. I shall not want. Oh, this is the good news. There is a word from outside. We're not just shut up in our little closed system. This is a word from the shepherd. This is his own self-conscious authority. He's aware that he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. What I wrote, therefore, he says, is absolutely true. Sweated out the words so you'd get the point, he said, so that you drive these things into your heart like a nail. And it was the Spirit of God that was goading me to put put these put this lecture down accurately and and do it well so that you'd never forget it. He says, making many books, there's no end, and much study wearies the body. Boy, is that ever true. You won't find God in most books because they're not from the shepherd. Most of it's just a lot of nonsense. We ought to read. We ought to read widely. We ought to read well. But we're not going to find God in most books. Only those that are either inspired by the shepherd or written by men that know the shepherd. Verse 13. When all has been heard, after 12 chapters and 221 verses and a whole lifetime of searching for meaning, Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's it. That's what you've been looking for all your life. Just devote yourself to God and follow him. Yield your will to him. C.S. Lewis said there are really only two kinds of people in in the world. There are those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says, your will be done. Fearing God simply means saying to God that we want to will one will. We want to will what you will. We want to subject ourselves to you. We love you. We want to follow you. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Here's the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. If you're looking for satisfaction, that's where you're going to find it. And that is the only place that you're going to find it. Here's a man who devoted his entire life to trying to satisfy himself at some other well. And he says, there's no other spring. He says, there's no other spring. Your God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And that sounds like sexist language, but he's talking about mankind. And literally, he says, this is what makes you a man. You want to be a real man? You want to be a real woman? You want to be whole? You want to be fulfilled? You want to find satisfaction? That's, that's where you find it. Loving God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And following him. I so often quote Mother Teresa's words. Just devote yourself to Jesus. And you'll be all right. Isn't that simple? And here we run ourselves ragged. We end up in the day with about a foot of tongue hanging out because we're We're looking for satisfaction in something other than God. For he says God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or bad. In other words, there there is order and meaning in the universe. It does matter what we do with our life. And as the Westminster Catechism put it, the chief end of man is to know God and enjoy him forever. And that is all there is to that. That's how we find satisfaction. Let's pray. There's some here I 
I know that are content to live in darkness in the, what C.S. Lewis called the shadow lands, land of shadows and broken dreams. You're, you're no worse than, than anyone else. We're all sinful at the very core of our being. The only difference between you and, and, and others in this room is that, that some have been willing to expose themselves to the light. They've been willing to bring their sin out into the open and admit that they need a shepherd. They need someone to take them out of, out of their sit, dreadful situation. And perhaps you've been unwilling to do that. Let me just say again that all God wants you to do is to come to the light. Jesus is that light that enlightens every man, as John said. If we come to the light, we expose every nook and cranny and corner of our life to him. He'll shine the light into our life and he'll cleanse us from all sin. Not that we will never again sin, but he will declare us righteous in in the name of his son. And there are others, I'm sure, here that are struggling up into the light who have been looking for God. I want you to understand that if you draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. He's not hard to find. He's not playing games with you. Hebrews says that he's a, a God who, who responds to us. If we believe that he is and that he is a, a rewarder of those that seek him, and we draw near to him, then he'll draw near to us. And then there are some of us here who have come out into the light. The Lord Jesus is our shepherd, but we're still, uh, we're still living in shadow land to some extent. We still think that there's going to be something in this life that will ultimately satisfy us. It simply isn't true. And I would encourage you to set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. There'll be people here at the front to talk to you if you'd like to to talk over your relationship to Christ after the service, both men and women. We'd love to talk to you if you'd come down and just spend some time with us. Will you stand? Let's pray. Lord, we want to hear again the wonderful words of the Good Shepherd. I am the Good Shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish. Lord, thank you for those good words. What good news that is, that we do not have to live meaningless, pointless lives. Grant to us a deep love for you, a devotion to you, that will eclipse every other devotion. And help us to believe it, the truth of this book, so sincerely that we no longer chase after shadows. And help us to believe it to such an extent that we're willing to lay down our life for others so they can hear it. Lord, use us as your messengers of good news today to take the message of meaning and hope and satisfaction from this place out into a world that's never heard that you've spoken to them in a son. We ask these things in Jesus' name.